Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by two of my friends from Ally. We've got Lindsay Bell, Chief Investment Strategist, and Callie Cox, who is a Senior Investment Strategist, again, both at Ally. Welcome to the show. Hey, so glad to be here, Dan. It's definitely an interesting time to be, you know, joining a behavioral finance podcast. That's right. So we are talking in the the second of second of February. We're beginning to see all of the meme stocks, the the steam come out of the memes, if you will. Uh, GameStop today has fallen from its recent high of 500 to about 120 or 115 as we sit here today. So this gets us right into my first question. So I'm going to present y'all with a thesis, and then you tell me if I'm right or not. So I have been saying that I believe that investors are more primed for greed and fear today than they have been at any time in the last hundred years. And let me kind of explain my thinking. There's this phenomenon in psychology known as primacy and recency. Basically, we're sort of... uh, early experiences and recent experiences have an outsized impact on how we view the world. So the quick succession of crises over the last 20 years, right? We've had the the tech bubble. We've had the great financial uh, crisis of 08, 09. We've had the Corona crisis. We've had two of the three worst economic shocks in American history in the last 20 years. And so my thought is, that just about everyone who's investing now has lived through an early sort of formative crisis. And also we've all lived through this recent formative crisis. You know, in 2020, we had fear and greed happening at such a breakneck pace. So I think this primacy and this recency leads me to believe that most people have had a pretty turbulent time and view the markets in in a pretty turbulent way. So that's my thesis on on investors being primed for for fear and for greed. What what do you two think about this thesis? And feel free to, to take it apart if you disagree. Yeah, well, I'd love to hear Lindsay's take on this. Um, especially because with some background. So I'm a young millennial. I started working in 2013. So that means I was in high school during the financial crisis. So I have a different perspective than Lindsay does on the financial crisis because she was working on Wall Street during that. Um, But you know what? I think overall, Dan, your thesis is right. You know, I can speak from like seeing my friends and personally, I think there is a little bit of fear out there in terms of investing, especially from all those scars from like the big economic meltdown and the market meltdown we saw from the great financial crisis. And now from the COVID crisis, if you will, Um, you know, it's definitely fearful and uncertain right now. And honestly, I mean, if you want to spin it one way, I mean, honestly, fear is kind of what got us here. Fear is kind of what drove that 11 year bull market that we saw uh, from 2009 to, I guess, 2020. Um, It sounds kind of crazy, but, you know, whenever stocks fell in the last bull market, you would always hear somebody say, oh, this is the big one. Like, that's it. Stocks are going down forever. 
And, you know, there was a lot of cash on the sidelines because everybody thought, well, this is it. We saw the market melt down and it could surely happen again. So, you know, in a weird way, fear did help the market go higher. It was kind of like some healthy skepticism there. Um, And we could be seeing a lot of that now, too. I mean, you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of euphoria out there, too. And there are definitely signs of that. But at the same time, there are a lot of signs of greed. Sorry, fear. So, you know, that little mix makes me think that not all investors are on one side of the boat. And, you know, if something did happen, then, you know, maybe we're watching the risks a little bit more because we are fearful. But Lindsay, I want to hear your thoughts on that, too, Um, as somebody who is working on Wall Street and who kind of grew up in the same generation, but grew up on the other side of like the millennial generation. Well, I like the thesis because um, about fear and greed. And it's, it is really interesting because I think, Callie, you hit the nail on the head uh, that, that really the great financial crisis drove fear because the recovery from that was a, a lot longer. Um, but I think the pandemic crisis that we just went through is driving greed because newer investors are seeing the market rebound at uh, unprecedented pace, at an unprecedented pace. And um, there's an economist out there, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith. And he says that he asserts that um, our notoriously short financial memory is what creates the conditions for market collapse. But to your point, Daniel, you're saying we've we've seen two financial crises in the last 20 or or last 15 years. And um, so we have a little bit of both. And I think that's that's what investors are grappling with right now. They don't know if they should be fearful or if they should be greedy right now. They, they seem to want to be greedy, but there are still some, a lot of other underlying economic um, forces that are preventing them from um, really jumping probably fully on the euphoria bandwagon. So I think we could still be in early stages of this bull market. I know we'll talk about that later, but it's definitely a push and pull between the two at this point in time, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I'll add one more feeling in there too. I mean, there's just so many, so many emotions flying around right now, but I feel like we're seeing a lot of hope too. (laughs) I mean, if we're grappling with this, I mean, like, yeah, Lindsay, you brought up the great point that like we recovered so quickly, but we're also in like essentially an economic crisis that will end that almost has like a definitive ending in the next six to 12 months because vaccines are rolling out and eventually people are going to you know, be vaccinated and they'll be able to get out of their homes and spend that money um, that they're sitting on. Um, you know, I know the economy is fractured, but I feel like that's a big investor. That's like the investor perception right now. It's like, yeah, we know that things are definitely going to be better because they can't get much worse. So why not, you know, jump into a market that tends to get better when things get better? Yeah, it's incredible to think about. So you keep hearing these stories about the Roaring Twenties. Will we have a, a, a second round of the Roaring Twenties? Because of course, in 1918, you had this deadly flu, and then we know what happened in the Twenties. But then, you know, a part of me says, eh, this is just representativeness bias, right? This is something that humans do. They go, oh, this thing is like that thing. That's the twenties. This is the twenties, which is sort of a dumb reason to, you know, <laughs> to, to equate to, <laughs> to equate two things. But then on the other hand, I know for myself that I cannot wait to spend money. I cannot wait to get out <laughs> Plane. Like I cannot wait, I cannot wait to go out to dinner in a restaurant and, you know, spend an, an enormous amount of money on an extravagant feast and hug my friends and see my family. So 
What do you two think about this thesis that we might have sort of a second roaring 20s and that there is a great deal of pent up demand? Ooh, yeah. Do you want me to jump in? Uh, yeah, I'll let Lindsay take this. We've talked a lot about this, Dan. I feel like we've batted this around a lot. So I want to hear what Lindsay says. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm laughing at the, the things you're saying because I just said to my husband the other day, I'm like, can you believe it's been a year since we've been on an airplane? Um, and, and so I totally am in the same boat as you are. I can't wait to spend some money and I'm tired of being what, on what feels like a lockdown in my house, working from home and I'm all spending the majority of my time at home. Um, so I do think that there is this possibility of another roaring 20s, but I do agree with you. I think it's silly just to look back and say, well, after the Spanish flu, then it was the 20s. So here we are again, um, you know, a century later. Um, so I think that um, when I look at the consumer, though, you know, they are much more financially, uh, they're in a much better financial position now than they were pre-pandemic. And what I mean by that is uh, if you look at the amount of cash in uh, checking accounts or deposit accounts at banks, it's at an all-time high. It's eclipsed $15 trillion in the U.S. This is domestic numbers. If you look at the consumer's balance sheets, they've actually been paying down credit card debt. Um, and they've so they've been using the extra money that they're not spending um, to really right-size their financial house. Of course, stimulus checks have also been a, a huge benefit for a lot of these consumers. Um, so there is, they, they have money to spend. And, and they've, been, they've remained relatively optimistic. You know, I think in, uh, towards the end of last year, um, going into the election, we saw the consumer get um, a little a little bit more shy about um, about spending and their expectations for the economy. Um, and as stimulus talks ramped up, they have kind of so has their confidence levels. But at the same time, you know, there's still question marks about when we're getting stimulus. Um, we're finally just now starting to see uh, uh uh, virus cases come down. We're seeing vaccines being rolled out. Um, so that certainly is a positive going into, into the months ahead and hopefully the summertime period. Uh, but there's still a lot of uncertainty out there. But, but I do agree with you that I think there is a significant amount of pent-up demand. And what you've also seen is with the consumers, when they do receive the, the stimulus checks like they did in, in the early part of January, um, you see spending tick up at, at places, you know, like um, fast casual restaurants and retail centers and, and online. So, so the stimulus is having an impact on the consumer, but uh, you have to also realize that our economy is not fully open yet. And, and once we get to that level where, where people are able to resume normal day life, including travel, including socializing at restaurants and bars and spending time with family and friends again. I think that that is, is really going to be a big driver for economic activity and, and spending in general. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I agree with Lindsay there. And kind of going back to your thesis, Dan, too, I hate to use the phrase, this time is different, because I know that that's like a that's a no-no phrase in finance, but you know, when you're comparing this to the Spanish flu pandemic in like the late 19, the 1920s, I mean, I, I got to think this time has to be different. I mean, we can't, 
I agree generally that like the economy will rebound and, you know, we all hate sitting in the house or in the house board, board in the house. But, you know, I, I just don't think that we can use the 1920s as a playbook for this. I think we can roughly, but just so much has changed and the mechanics mechanics are totally different. And I might eat my words <laughs> in like the next year or something, but yeah. Yeah, it's going to it's going to be fascinating to watch, you know, by some by some valuations the market is already uh sitting pretty steeply valued in many respects. So, is there more room to run? We'll see, but I think the the three of us are certainly going to be doing our part to stimulate the economy once once things are back to normal a little bit. So, I want to talk for a moment about uh, the Wall Street bets phenomenon. This would, uh, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring this up this week of all weeks. Now, in some ways, this is a tale as old as time, right? There have always been, you know, in investment chat rooms. There have always been investment groups, but this one felt a little bit different. Uh, it felt like it was it was coordinated and that it was powerful in a way that perhaps uh, previous groups have been diffuse or, or or powerless. So, what it put me in mind of too is again just where we are sort of psychologically with respect to the pandemic. And I think we're just so lonely. You know, I, I talk about uh, b- before the pandemic, uh, research in the U.S. showed that half of Americans qualified themselves as being very lonely pre-pandemic. Uh, in the U.K. and Japan, they had actually appointed ministers of loneliness because the health impacts of social isolation in those populations were so dramatic they actually found that loneliness was the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. They found that loneliness was twice as damaging to your health as obesity. So do you think this collectivist force in the markets is powerful today? Is it, is it especially powerful today because of our loneliness and our connectedness via the internet? Or is this just another fad that will dissipate and have, have no long-lasting repercussions on the ways that, that markets work? Yeah. I mean, I think it's both, Dan. So, I mean, I think it's, I, there's just no doubt that everybody's trying to find some sort of community these days. And, you know, the internet is basically the only place you can go for that. I mean, many of us haven't seen friends and family in a year. I mean, I was just thinking, I haven't seen my husband's grandmas in over a year. And it, I just know everybody is kind of going through their own little version of that. So you're right. It is an unprecedented time for loneliness. And I know that word is overused, but it really is unprecedented. And that study you mentioned about the ministers of loneliness just makes me so sad. I mean, this is a huge crisis for mental health and everybody's kind of grappling and trying to fix it. And there are different ways like coping with it. Um, I mean, my coping is Twitter. Uh, I love the camaraderie of the internet. And it seems like a lot of people, you know, really like it too. So in that context, it does make sense that there are so many like social media movements going on. I mean, there have always been forums and groups to discuss investment ideas. I mean, that's just human nature. You know, you get together um, and you talk with people that are like you and you kind of like confirm each each other's biases or something. And then voila, you have a stock that you're kind of pushing for. But, you know, I don't think we've ever seen this kind of an effort to, you know, really move the markets on a huge scale. And I think that speaks to technology. Technology really is far enough along that it's easy to kind of find your people. And, you know, if you don't find your people, it's really easy to scrape the web and kind of see what the big ideas are and piggyback on those big ideas. 
So, you know, thinking about what this means going forward, I really think the genie's out of the bottle. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think we're going to see more of this, you know, maybe not on the scale we saw with GameStop, but, you know, I feel like now that, you know, now that Wall Street and, you know, Main Street both have seen how this works, I can't, I, I mean, I think that we'll probably see it again in some form or fashion. Yeah, I think I would just add to what Callie said there in that um, it's interesting that, Dan, that this happened on um, on Reddit and not on Twitter, which I think there's there's always a big, you know, the stock twits. There's there's a big um, there's a big group on Twitter that are always talking about um, investments and different stock ideas or trade ideas, but nothing there has um, has escalated to this level. So when you say it feels a little bit different, it kind of does. And, and, you know, like Callie talked about technology and uh, the tools that retail investors, everyday investors have at their fingertips has really um, has reached a level that we haven't seen in the past. There's definitely a lot more transparency, which is a great thing. You've seen um, different brokerage firms um, cut trading commissions down to zero. So it's a lot uh, more accessible for, for the everyday investor um, to access the markets. Um, but what I think is missing here is, is that uh, level of education of the markets before they jump into uh, stocks like the ones that uh, were driven by the, the most recent um, social media uh, clam, uh, clamoring. Um, so, you know, I, I just think that, uh, that the transparency is good. But I think that my concern probably lies more around the accuracy and the quality of the information that is being uh, being passed on on forums like that, which have over I, I don't know I early on before things got really crazy there were over two million I think um, two million uh, people that belong to that Wall Street bets chat room I think it's even more uh, more at this point in time. And so that's a that's a big group of people that start pushing an individual security. And to me, that raises some some red flags, especially when you see some of the people know what they're talking about in in those forums and they've they've done their homework. But others are piling on and adding misinformation to the story. So to me, there's people, individuals, um, everyday people again, that are putting money into some of these, these bets that are discussed on these forums. Um, but how do you hold people accountable for, for these, these ideas, um, especially when there are consequences, um, when people start losing their money? That, that's the question that I have. On the positive side, though, I do think that it, it has created this um, sense of confidence among normal people that, hey, you know what, maybe I can, if people on Reddit can invest, and do do well. Maybe I can too. I just think now we need to turn this conversation into a conversation about long term investing, investing for goals, um, and not just looking for a lottery ticket or that one day pop that's going to um, pay off your uh, credit card or whatever it is that you wanted to spend your your GameStop or AMC pop on. So you bring up you bring up a couple of interesting points here. So one one debate that's been raging online that I am a, a little bit of two minds about is whether or not this is a good thing net net for young investors. So on the one hand, you've got literally everyone. You know, you've got 
people that have never given a darn about investing, talking about GameStop, talking about Wall Street bets, which I just looked up. It's 8.3 million now. It was 2 million just oh. a my God! <laughs> <laughs> just a couple, just a couple of days ago, it was it was uh, two million, and now it's eight point three million. So, on the one hand, you've got more people engaged with with capital markets than ever before, but on the other hand, there's a pretty strong bifurcation in the results. Like, if you, I mean, look, it's uh, we'll see what what it all shakes out as. But as we sit here today, your your returns, if you invested in any of these meme stocks. You either had extravagant out of this world returns or you lost nearly everything. There's not a whole lot. There's not a whole lot in the middle. There have been a lot of up 50% days and a lot of down 50% days. Are people learning the wrong lessons? Like, are people really learning about markets and getting engaged in markets in, in a meaningful way that will lead them to, you know, discerning goals based investing like you're talking about? Or are people either learning that? you know, markets will make you extravagantly rich or break your back, which is not, you know, doesn't, doesn't have to be the case. So what do you think? Yeah. Are we learning the right lessons from this? Yeah, I think this gets back to your very first question. Is, is this um, fear or is this greed? And these, these, this example is an example of greed right now. But, the, you know, the rubber will hit the road. And that's why I think it's so important that we, we get education into the hands of these young investors who are all of a sudden, they woke up to, to the capital markets. They woke up to the stock market and they realized nothing that they can probably do. But we need to, you know, and maybe I don't know if it's through legislation, through education, um, in, in the in schools um, at a very young age. There's a lot of programs out there that I think probably need to be elevated to teach people about investing in the markets a, a lot sooner um, than that teaches them really the right steps to how to think about the stock market. Um, it has its ups and its downs. It shouldn't be nearly as volatile as some of these stocks that they're investing in right now. If you're doing investing right, it should be somewhat boring, um, but you are obviously taking on some risks. But when investors realize that, you know, it's, it's, it is hard to go it alone, especially when you do return to uh, a life that's more normal. You're back, um, you re-enter society, you are going back to the office, spending more time at the office, you're going to the gym after work, you're meeting friends for dinner after that, and you're not, you don't have as much time to spend, um, you know, on in your brokerage account or researching stocks. Is it something that you're still going to um, want to do um, and or you're not able if you're not able to look at, at, at your account every single day or every single hour, are your emotions going to be able to stay in check throughout the long term investing process? Um, these are all questions that I think that um, individual investors need to answer for themselves. Um, and and I, I just think that now is, is a great opportunity for for folks like Callie and I, uh, for uh, other people, well-regarded firms um, with well-regarded backgrounds to help educate individuals. The other question that we have is, is really, you know, the proliferation on social media. It's not just Reddit. You have a lot of people posing as experts in, this, in the social media space, whether that's on TikTok, whether that's on Instagram, Twitter. And it's hard to, um, it's hard to identify the information that, that is accurate. 
um, you, you end up following or listening to somebody that you like rather than somebody that really, you know, has experience in the business and knows what they're doing. So I think there's a lot of questions that need to be answered right now. And I, you know, I wonder if it means that more regulation or legislation is going to be need to put into place, or maybe it's just simply education at a very early, early age so that people can make these decisions on their own a lot easier. Yeah, there was a, a penny stock that that blew up. It was the most heavily traded stock yesterday. I won't name the security, but there was a there was a heavily traded over-the-counter stock yesterday. And I was watching the conversation around it on social media and people, you know, putting forth what they were calling due diligence. And a lot of these folks had a, a six dollar target uh, on this, which would have put it. Uh, to a $1.2 trillion market cap for, the, for this, uh, this stock. And it's like, oh my gosh. And you, you see people lapping this up though. You see people just eating this up and you're like, oh guys, come on. This, this, there's a better way. There, a lot of what passes for due diligence or education uh, on the internet isn't of much substance. So I think there's a, a buyer beware uh, caveat here for sure. So keeping with this theme of, of the Wall Street bets and, and the related sort of populist movement, if you will, we know, you know, like I just cited, I just looked it up, 8.3 million folks on Wall Street bets. We know that the number of actively traded retail brokerage accounts has doubled in, in just the past decade. But yet most estimates I see still say that institutional money, big firm money, still accounts for about 70 to 75% of the volume in the markets. Are, are we overstating the impact of retail investors? Was this really driven by Wall Street bets and, and uh, associated folks? Or was this big firms piggybacking off of a market narrative and, and moving the markets in ways that we're crediting uh, the little guy for? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. We've heard a lot of speculation around this. You know, I think, I think, you know, I think it's a mix of Wall Street and retail. I think it's hard to say that it's just retail. I mean, I was looking at volume in GameStop yesterday, and there were some days last week where volume reached 200 million shares. I mean, GameStop was the most traded stock in the US stock market, which is insane if you think about, you know, all the stocks in exchange traded funds and, you know, mutual funds out there. Um, so I feel like you, I mean, obviously like retail started the fire, but institutional money, I think was really the kerosene. Um, I think that there's no doubt that, you know, institutional money was hopping on the back of this. Um, but that's not to downplay the, uh, downplay retail's impact. I think that retail, um, while they don't have as much big impact on like the day-to-day of the market, I think there are spots of the market where there's more retail interest. And, you know, honestly, kind of going back to the last question too, Dan, um, you know, I think this is a really good moment for retail. Um, you know, you mentioned there are probably people who are going to lose their shirts in this and that's not good. Um, it's going to hurt, but you never want to protect investors uh, from what they want to do with their own money. Um, that's not to say that we can't educate them, but you don't want to protect investors. And I cannot begin to tell you how many good conversations I've had with friends and family because of what's happened in the past few weeks. I mean, at times it's been really, really frustrating. And I've been like, come on, why don't you understand this? But it's, it's been a good door for us to really have those conversations. And I feel like money talk is becoming less taboo because of this too. I mean, 
I never imagined like talking to, talking to one of my sisters about stocks and voila, that happened on Thursday. So, um, you know, there's a, there are a lot of things to consider here. And I think the easy answer is to be like, ah, bad retail. But, you know, I think, I think it was a mix of retail and institutional money. And I, I really think this leads to some good disruption down the road. Um, if not through, you know, education and personal finance classes or through like more regulation or more thought out regulation. So it's interesting. So even someone like me who spends a lot of time thinking about markets, I feel like I've learned so much in the past two weeks about market microstructure and the way that the pipes and the plumbing works and, you know, order flow processing and the way that, you know, big firms get compensated for quote unquote free trading and the, you know, the mechanics of a, a short squeeze. You know, you all wrote a piece recently about the, a great piece on the mechanics of a short squeeze. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Because this has been a weird year where the most heavily shorted stocks on the market have been some of the biggest performers. Uh, in January, the, a basket of the 10 most heavily shorted stocks was up an average of 59%. So talk us through the mechanics of this short squeeze, which has been very much on, on the tip of people's tongues lately. Yeah, definitely. So I'll break it down quickly. Um, so short selling, it's basically where you borrow shares um, from somebody else and you sell them at the higher price and then you pocket that money, hoping that the stock goes down. Because one day you're going to have to return those shares to the person that you borrowed from and you're going to have to buy them back in the market. So say that you shorted at like $20, shorted a stock at $20. You sold that stock to somebody else at $20, but you still have that person out there that you borrowed the share from that you have to return the share to. So when that person who you borrowed from is like, hey man, I need that back, uh, you can you hope that you go into the market and those shares are sitting at $10 so you can buy them at a lower price. Um, so that's the 101 on short squeezes. But, you know, I want to throw out there too. I feel like there's, there's been a lot of, you know, uh, bad speak about short sellers and there are bad apples in every bunch, but I think it's been lost on people that short sellers are the good guys of the market generally, very generally. Like, again, I know that there are bad actors, but, you know, when you think about markets, there's always a buyer, there's always a seller. Um, so markets depend on a variety of viewpoints and, you know, short sellers are just on one side. There's nothing wrong with that. And I mean, you don't want to deny the fact that short sellers have called out some pretty serious fraud in history. I mean, they called out Enron, they called out Lehman Brothers. Um, they're kind of like the watchdogs of the market. And I hope you don't think I'm like talking them up too much, but um, I think that that's been overlooked a lot. So I would hope that short selling doesn't go out of style. Although I will add, I think it will go out of style. And I think short stuff, I think short sellers won't be as public with their ideas. Um, you know, a lot of the notorious uh, or more famous short sellers like to go public with their ideas, kind of like what Citron did. Um, and Citron actually announced last week that they're not going to go public with their short ideas anymore. Um, so knowing that there can be a pile on, I'm guessing more short sellers won't talk about it, but I think short selling will exist just maybe in a you know, smaller and less public forum. 
Well, you know, you you really anticipated my question there because Citron was one of the best known short sellers around. They were always very vocal about their shorts, talking their book. And like you said, they're they're running running that back now because an angry mob of people. And I do think there's a great misunderstanding about the place of short sellers who, again, we're not trying to paint as overly saintly here, but they do they do a service for the market in uncovering fraud and keeping markets efficient and, and helping with price discovery. So we hope that the events of the past week or two won't make shorts so fearful uh, that they can't serve that, that useful function in the marketplace going forward. All right. So Lindsay, another change we've seen in the markets is that option volumes are up big, big. So option volumes are up 6x over the last 10 years, which is really incredible to say. Uh, and they've increased even more precipitously in the last year or two in this era of seamless and free transactions. So a lot of what has driven the price up of some of these meme stocks is is options, right? So what are some of the potential use cases for options trading? And what are some of the dangers or caveats that you would give to to people who are considering options investing? Yeah, um, you know, we actually have what we call an options guru on our team. His name's Brian Overby, and uh, I would recommend any of your listeners follow him on on Twitter, or he and I do a YouTube show um, every Tuesday at noon um, about different options trading strategies. Um, So Brian's a great follow. But yeah, in the past year, we've seen options trading become so much more popular. Um, And, and, you know, the way that we view it for longer term investors is it's it's a good supplement to a portfolio. I do worry, like we were talking about earlier, how, you know, Callie went through the the mechanics of what a short squeeze is and what happens. Um, There are a lot of newer investors jumping into this options space, which is great. But again, it comes back to that education point. We want people to understand exactly what they're doing when they're when they're entering the world. Um, of options. And you can learn so much from from Brian for certain there. Um, He's a great resource. Uh, But this isn't the type of investment that you should be relying on for your uh, for your entire portfolio or for your future. You know, again, it should be kind of a supplement to what your portfolio is, is is the way we kind of kind of look at it. Um, But um, so, you know, it, it, what's nice about um, options is it's a way to he- either hedge your bets or um, or, or really um, they can be also used as an income stream too. Um, they're a good supplement to retirement accounts as well. Um, and so, so they are uh, an interesting uh, tool to use within your portfolio, but you do have to be, you do have to be careful when it comes to the options world. Um, options are leveraged. Um, and that, that just means you can lose a lot more put in. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think enough investors, especially investors that are newer to the options world, really understand that um, you can lose really a lot of money in the, in this, um, in this environment. Um, we know a few people that have gotten into the options trading uh, world this year. And, you know, it's really been important to us really to make sure they understand that there are risks involved. So while they can limit your upside or your downside, they can also make it, depending on what type of strategy you're trading, they can also make it unlimited. So those are the things you kind of need to be of when when you're focusing in in the world of options and I think it's it's almost more important to educate yourself 
there, then, you know, it's a little bit easier to get away with things in the, in the world of, st- of stocks because they don't move as quickly on their own. Most of the time, <laughs> I mean, we guess we're learning a lesson in <laughs> an AMC, um, but with options, it could be a lot different. Yeah, great yeah. primer and a great suggestion for who to follow. So I recently, truly apropos of nothing, uh, tweeted <laughs> tweeted Robert Schiller's bubble checklist. It was just in a book I was reading. He has this sort of six-part checklist for bubbles. And Christine Bins from Morningstar, someone who I really enjoy, who's been on the show and, and whose opinion I respect, retweeted me and said, you know, uh, in, in 2000, I didn't say anything but I I feel like I have to say something now. I want to warn the world that things are pretty bubbly right now. So I want to read Schiller's checklist and I want you Mm two to respond to whether you, you are with Christine or not. So the bubble checklist is sharp price increases, public excitement, media frenzy, stories of people earning money that cause envy, interest among the general public and new era thinking to justify price increases. So in light of that checklist by a Nobel prize winner, are we in a bubble right now? <laughs> oh my gosh, this is a great, and, and I love Christine too. She's, she's really great too. And I, I do think it's in, important to, to bring, pull the checklist out. And as you read them off, you know, my head, I'm checking off the majority of those, but um, I think there's, portions of the market, the way I view it and think about it is there's portions of the market that that are in a bubble. Um, for example, you know, areas like perhaps these uh, short selling or speculative trades, maybe, for example, Bitcoin, maybe for another example, the housing market, giving the prices, price increases that we've seen there. Um, but But then on the other side of that equation, uh, when I look at the overall market in general, to me, there's a couple things, and Callie and I had written about this recently, is number one, we have Fed support. Um, usually, you see uh, bubbles pop when the, when the Fed moves off their easy money or dovish stance, and they start to raise interest rates. That's usually a key sign. And in fact, if you think about it, that, that started to happen right before, of course, the pandemic was a key catalyst for this last um, situation. But as they began moving off of interest rates, it was kind of a, a, a little bit of a signal to, to market participants. But everybody said this time is different because they're moving slowly. We're moving off of zero. We've seen interest rates so much higher. But right now, the, the Fed has really committed to keeping interest rates low until inflation moves moves much higher for for a longer period of time and you know Jerome Powell's been out there saying he's not even thinking about thinking about raising rates so we feel about good about the fed stance and that like i said in the past that has been a key indicator of when market bubbles could pop the market's makeup is changing i think what's really healthy about this market is you're seeing um, rotations happening. So tech has really taken a, a backseat to some of these more cyclical or even value-oriented sectors since the fall um, of or end of last year. And I think that is uh, is a really uh, strong positive. If you look at the equal weight S&P 500 index, it has outperformed the S&P 500 um, by a wide margin um, since you know the fourth quarter of, of last year, since the end of the third quarter, so through the fourth quarter and into this year. So I view that as a positive. And then what I always turn back to fundamentals. I know people talk a lot about the stretch valuation in the S&P 500 trading in around 
around 22, 23 times. But I, I point to investors that, okay, those, and maybe this, maybe this is giving into one, one of Schiller's uh, checklists that people are making or rationalizing valuations, but I'm not, hear me out for a second, I'm not rationalizing valuations, but that's that 22, 23 has come in from the peak that we saw in the summer uh, of 25, 26 times. Okay. It is still elevated by historical standards. The historical PE on the S&P 500 is like 16 times. Um, but I do think that uh, you're seeing the fundamentals of corporations improve. I mean, we're in the middle of earnings season right now. The fourth quarter has been much better than many people had anticipated. Uh, stocks aren't necessarily reacting to it, but that's because they run so far so fast, uh, in my opinion. Um, but the reality is, is that the fundamentals are still there. And if you think about it, they're, they're still there in an environment um, when when the economy hasn't returned to full capacity yet. So I think there still remains a lot of opportunity for earnings to catch up with the market. Um, and so those are, for those reasons, uh, we're, we're kind of uh, on the other side of the bubble, uh, of the bubble argument. So Yeah, yeah. So I was just going to say, I mean, if we have to talk about the B word, of course, I want to jump in. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely side with Lindsay there. I mean, I think my view is, you know, we're not, even if we are kind of in a bubble of some sorts, like, I don't think we're in the last phase of it just because of the Fed and the rotation we've seen in the market, um, as Lindsay mentioned. And the fact that we, I mean, the hope dynamic too, the hope dy- dynamic that I mentioned earlier I mean, hope can be a really powerful force. And we're in a crisis that, again, like many investors expect there to be a definitive ending to. I don't think it's that simple, but that's, you know, the pervasive thought in the marketplace. And, you know, I can, I can totally see why somebody would think that. And I think that that's a huge force under the market. You know, we, we find ourselves at a time, bubble or not, we find ourselves at a time when equity prices are elevated relative to historical averages. Bonds are expensive. Real estate is red hot. My buddy is a realtor. He says he gets 25 uh, 25 cash offers on average every time he puts up a house. Um, I collect baseball cards. Even baseball card values are out of sight. So at a time when so little seems to be on sale, you know, bubble or not, there's not much that's cheap out there. So what are you telling your clients about how to position themselves for success over the next decade? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so funny about your, your baseball collection, baseball card collection. Um, yeah. And you're, you're just seeing prices of everything rise, um, exponentially, but you know, we're in this for the long haul. And I think it's, it's a good point in time to remind investors, even especially ones that haven't gotten into the market just yet, when they hear all this conversation about things being overvalued, they're potentially being a bubble in the market, um, you know, prices at um, historically high levels. You know, what we like to remind investors, especially the younger ones at Ally Invest, we have a lot of millennial investors. It's the thing you need to remember is that, hey, you're not investing for the next six months you're investing for the next 20, 30 years or whatever your goal is, whether it's saving up for um, to buy a new home in the next five years, if it's to, if it's to um, fund a, a child's college education down the road, or maybe your own retirement, those are all longer term goals, anything over five years in our mind. And because of that, we think that you should have a portion 
of your investments in, in the market. But we also remind uh, our our customers that you know uh, uh, you know I, we see the the stock market at least in the nearer term being a, probably a better opportunity, offering a better opportunity than some of those other asset classes um, that you mentioned. But having diversification across assets, across assets still is a key component to investing. So when you do end up investing in that house, that's going to be a huge portion of, of your portfolio of investments, right? Um, but also, you know, diversification does, does a job by helping minimize risk. The whole point of investing is not only to get the return over the longer term and enjoy things like compounding, but it's also to live to see another day to reduce that risk in the marketplace. And when you're investing in um, hot stocks or speculative trades, like we've spent a lot of time talking about today, you're increasing that risk. But if you're looking at your portfolio from a holistic perspective, um, and you're, you are focusing on maintaining diversification and your long-term goals, and you're investing on a regular, consistent basis, not trying to time the market, we still think this is a really good time to get into the market. And I think Callie has some really great stats. Sorry to put you on the spot here, Callie, on um, the type of returns you can see in the stock market, even if you invest at the top. Oh, girl, I'm here with the stats, always. <laughs> You're not putting me on the spot. Yeah, so totally agree with everything Lindsay said. I mean, there are just so many data points out there that support the long-term game. And I will say like, if you're investing for the short term, there is a time and a place for that. And I totally respect that. You know, some people really like the challenge and the thrill of, you know, trading the markets and finding opportunities. I personally am more of a long-term investor. And I think, you know, most of the American population might lean towards long-term investing because like what Lindsay said, you know, some of us just want to retire comfort comfortably or, you know, buy that beach house in Hawaii in 20 years. Um, so yeah, in terms of data, I mean, I think that there's, I don't want to quote that because I'm not sure what that is, but you know, if you look at, uh, bear markets since 1950, I mean, I've done so many studies on bear markets. Um, of course they freak people out when stocks are falling, but you know, most bear markets recover within like two years of their last peak. I mean, if you think about the financial crisis, the financial crisis took like four years. That was a huge sell-off and it took the economy years to recover. But, you know, if you're in the market um, <clears throat> and you watch the S&P 500, it only took about four years to recover. And that's within a lot of long-term investors' time horizons or when they actually need that money. So as long as you stay the course um, and you don't, you know, freak out when stocks are falling, you really stick to your plan, long-term investing can be a really good strategy. And like I said, personally, I'm a long-term investor. Um, it's just... For me, it's just easier for my sanity and, you know, it's easier for my goals as well. So yeah, definitely there with Lindsay. So you both have given us incredible insights today. Uh, this is such a topical and a timely, uh, you know, pieces of data that you've given us today. I want people to be able to access these insights on the regular. Callie, you are one of my favorite follows on Twitter. I, I learned so much from all the knowledge that you drop on there. Lindsay, I'm gonna be tuning into your options show going forward. I've learned a ton about options this week when trying to understand everything that was going on and, and look forward to learning more. So if people wanna find you and, and read your work online or watch your, watch your video, where, where can they find each of you online? 
So yeah. my Twitter handle, my Twitter handle is at just L bell. So J U S T the letter L bell for Lindsay bell. Um, but then also you can find uh, all of Callie and I's research reports or blog posts, I guess more appropriately called at ally.com forward slash do dash it dash right. Um, and so everything we write is there. And if you Google if you put, uh, if you search my name on that blog, you'll find everything we've written. Yeah. And I'll jump in here. My Twitter account is at Callie, C-A-L-L-I-E, and then A, and then B as in boy, O-S-T. And I am so honored to be one of your favorite followers, Dan. And if you guys follow me, uh, just know that I'll be tweeting about UNC a lot. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you're, you're not a perfect, you're not a perfect follow for that reason, right? <laughs> but I mean, you're a you're a good you're a good follow. No, <laughs> so fantastic. I know, I know that kind of knocks me down a peg there. No. Go <laughs> go heels, it. go heels. Thank you both. Thank you both for being on the show today, and I look forward to talking to you both soon. Yeah, Thank sounds great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.